Hello, friends, and thanks for subscribing to the Defining Marriage podcast. You'll get one chapter every week of my book, Defining Marriage, Voices from a 40-Year Labor of Love. Stick around afterwards for a little post-chapter discussion with me and some special guests. This week, we have Enrique Managas, Sandy Steer, Chris Perry, and Kate Kendall. On the show, we trace the decades-long evolution of marriage through the personal stories of those who lived through it. Defining Marriage is the story of how people from all walks of life fought to change marriage, and how fighting for marriage, in turn, changed them. Chapter 13. Well, that is fucking bold. It was Elisa's first birthday on the day that her dads, Jason and Enrique Managas, got married. We wanted to have a wedding, Enrique said, but we also knew that Prop 8 was going to pass. It was October 22nd, just two weeks before the election, when they decided to hasten things along and pop over to San Francisco City Hall for a quick ceremony in front of a bust of Harvey Milk. Elisa, wearing a tiny flower girl outfit, watched as her fathers recited their vows. After a quick brunch to celebrate, Enrique and Jason were back at work by lunchtime. Soon after that came the election, the protests, the tears, and the anger. Enrique was 33. He had joined the firm Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher a few months earlier, having come from a small firm where he handled divorces and contracts. Small potatoes in the scheme of things, he sighed. Not the kind of work I wanted to do. I knew that Gibson Dunn had bigger cases. As a law student at Berkeley, he'd been inspired by the case Lawrence v. Texas, which overturned laws against gay sex. The Supreme Court had decided the case during his first year of law school, and he read anything he could find about the attorneys who worked on it. They were cemented in immortality, winning this amazing case. I thought, someday, I would love to be a part of that in a small way. I will carry someone's briefcase, he said. I went to law school because a part of me wanted to change the world. Prior to switching his major to law, he'd studied theater design. The day after the election, his colleague Ethan Detmer wondered aloud if there was anything that they could do to reestablish the freedom to marry. One week after the election, Enrique proposed a few ideas to some of the top attorneys at the firm. And one month after that, his team was preparing a lawsuit for a group of 50 supportive California legislators. I wanted to contribute to my community, he told me. I thought I would do that in a small way. Chad Griffin had no way of knowing this work was underway when he met his longtime friends and collaborators, Rob and Michelle Reiner, for lunch at the Polo Lounge in Beverly Hills. He was still recovering from the emotional drain of working on the campaign, the euphoria of being caught in the protests, and an irresistible need to do something, anything, about Prop 8. If Chad needed to do something, then the Reiners did too. They were intensely fond of him, having met over a decade earlier in the White House. At the time, Rob was researching his film The American President, and Chad, the youngest White House staffer in history, had been assigned to show him around. Rob was struck by the projected confidence and ambition of this nerdy teenage staffer from Arkansas. They quickly developed a close relationship, and Rob resolved to keep an eye on the kid's career. Clinton had said to him, You can come work in the White House, but you have to promise you'll go back to school, Rob told me when I met him and Michelle in his Beverly Hills office. Chad obeyed. He got a degree at Georgetown and was about to interview with Madeleine Albright at the State Department when Rob caught wind that he was looking for a job. The Reiners had just launched a new foundation to promote early childhood development in California, and they needed someone to run it. Even though he was only in his mid-twenties, they didn't think twice about offering Chad the leadership role. Chad moved to California and spent years leading the Reiners' philanthropic endeavors before starting a political consulting firm of his own. When the Reiners talk about Chad, it's with the giddy warmth and pride that you usually only hear from parents. They sigh happily, they list his accomplishments like they're reciting a poem, and they smile and shake their heads at each other when remembering how he shyly came out to them. I have something to tell you, Chad told them, not long after he came to work for their foundation. They thought he was about to quit, so when he instead revealed that he was gay, it was like, duh, Michelle laughed. 
They loved the plucky kid who bootstrapped himself from a tiny backwater town in Arkansas to the White House, whom they shepherded from college to running a major political machine, and whose career they championed as he grew increasingly savvy and sought after. Rob enjoyed a similar relationship with a mentor figure of his own, Norman Lear, creator of All in the Family. Rob shot to fame as Michael Stivick on the show. When I interviewed Rob for this book, I was petrified that I'd call him Meathead by accident, and was inspired by Lear's progressive advocacy group, People for the American Way. When I was a young guy starting out, I saw what he did with People for the American Way, Rob said. Norman taught him that as a celebrity, you can do one of two things. You can draw attention to a particular issue by virtue of the fact that you're a celebrity, or you can move the ball forward on a particular issue if you take the time to really understand it. Political agitation runs in both Rob and Michelle's blood. Growing up, Rob's parents marched against the Vietnam War, though you may know his mother for delivering the line, I'll have what she's having, in When Harry Met Sally, she may have had an even more indelible impact on American culture by helping to design the famous anti-war poster, War is Not Healthy for Children and Other Living Things. For her part, Michelle is the daughter of an Auschwitz survivor and the granddaughter of a prison reformer. The Rose M. Singer Center on Rikers Island is named for her. Michelle's older sister is a rabbi active in social justice causes. Her younger sister directs programs for children living in poverty. Like the rest of her family, Michelle comes equipped with a sixth sense for detecting injustice and an unstoppable drive to correct it. Despite all that, marriage never demanded much of their attention. But Chad's interest changed things. We both love Chad, Rob said. He's like a son. The idea that somebody you love, that you're close to, could have rights less than you, it didn't seem right. When it became something that was passionate to him, it meant something to us. The more they talked it over at their post-election lunch, the more they wanted to support Chad's budding passion for the issue. But how? The lucky break came at the end of the meal, when a family friend stopped by to say hello. Hearing that they were distraught about Prop 8, she mentioned that she was friends with Ted Olson, one of the most powerful conservative attorneys in the country, and that he favored marriage equality. Olson was best known for successfully persuading the U.S. Supreme Court to end a vote recount in Florida, assuring George W. Bush's ascension to the White House. Ted Olson? Rob exclaimed, this is the guy who put me in bed for two days. I was so depressed after Bush v. Gore. Conservative or not, if Olson was really on their side, this was an incredible opportunity. His team could supply the best legal minds in the country, the Reiners could assemble the financial muscle, and Chad could strategize the entire endeavor. Chad, go to D.C., Rob advised. Meet with him. See if he's legitimate. I received a call, someone out of the blue, Olson recalled, asking me whether I would be interested in being involved in the case and I really did not need to give it a great deal of thought. A flurry of meetings followed, with both sides sniffing each other out to determine just how serious they were. Olson, it turned out, had a keen sense of social justice, recalling a pivotal moment in college when he was confronted by racism. On a trip through the Midwest with a debate team, he was turned away from restaurants because the team had black members. It was not the America that I understood, he told a reporter for a website called, appropriately, Super Lawyers. Olson's interest in overturning Prop 8 coincided with a pivotal shift in how Americans understood the gay impulse to marry. It had traditionally been an intensely liberal and leftist cause, so the involvement of Rob Reiner was no surprise. But Olson saw marriage equality as a conservative goal, which caught many off guard. After all, he reasoned, settling down, raising a family, committing to a partner, what could be more old-fashioned? Not to mention, the elimination of government intrusion into private lives coincided with Olson's pure Republican convictions. If Olson's involvement was unexpected, Ken Melman's was simply ludicrous. Ken was an infamous Republican strategist, fundraiser, and party leader. He'd been chair of the Republican National Committee and managed George W. Bush's re-election campaign in 2004, the same year that national Republican strategists placed marriage bans on the ballot in 11 states. 
It was unbelievable that he now wanted to see those bans overturned. But Ken was also a closeted gay man, and at 43 years old, he was finally ready to come out. Joining Ted Olson, the Reiners, and Chad seemed like a good way to finally put his political acumen and millionaire friends to use on behalf of the gay community, rather than against it. And, crucially, he could persuade conservative friends that they should have been supporting marriage equality all along. If you're trying to sell a Ford, a bad way to sell a Ford is to tell a Toyota customer, you're an idiot, Ken said, explaining his role in the endeavor. A better way is to say, the attributes you liked about your Toyota are attributes that are actually even more present in a Ford. You cannot persuade anybody until you listen and understand them first. And when you do that, you find you have a lot more in common than you think. Melman has a penchant for automotive analogies. In 2004, he told the Republican Governors Conference in New Orleans, If you drive a Volvo and you do yoga, you're pretty much a Democrat. If you drive a Lincoln or a BMW and you own a gun, you're voting for George Bush. The team began to coalesce around an unlikely alliance of liberals and conservatives, Clinton staff with Bush staff, Volvo owners shaking hands with Lincoln drivers. If only Archie Bunker could have seen what Meathead was up to now. Ken's marriage rhetoric was crafty, calm, and conservative. It is consistent with our party's philosophy, whether it's the principle of individual freedom or limited government, he told The Atlantic in a coming-out interview, which stood in sharp contrast to the revolutionary tone adopted by another team member, Dustin Lance Black. Lance's earliest memories are of growing up in a troubled home in San Antonio. We were just surviving, he said. His birth father had disappeared. His mother was partially paralyzed from polio. His stepfather was drunk and abusive. Lance had known he was gay since he started developing crushes on boys at the age of six, and growing up in the Mormon church, he knew how homosexuality was regarded. He intentionally made no friends because he was terrified that he'd develop romantic feelings or that they would discover his secret. His whole existence was about survival. What do we eat? How long will we be able to live in this apartment? Am I going to get the shit beaten out of me by my stepdad when he comes home? He recalled. You don't do a lot of dreaming. The family's turning point came when the Air Force deployed the man Lance called the evil stepdad to South Korea. While he was away, Lance's mom met another young San Antonio soldier, a man from outside the Mormon church who cared for the family. One day, he remembers, she sat her son down to propose a plan. That guy who's been coming around a little bit asked me to marry him, she said but he has orders to ship off. What do you think about going to California? Lance didn't have to think about it. Let's get out of here, he said. His mom ditched the abusive stepdad and moved the family out to California's dusty, flat Central Valley, where Lance decided he was done with the Mormon church for good. But the Central Valley is as conservative as the South, and he still found himself plagued by self-loathing and guilt. All I heard were messages that something was wrong with me, he said. I didn't know there was another option. His voice wavered. I considered... He paused... You know, some dire solutions. Once again, his mother came to the rescue. This time she signed her timid son up for a theater program. My mom thought the solution for shyness was drama club, he said. Lance's story struck a chord with me, because mine did too. As a kid, I was much like Lance. Quiet, afraid of everything, and almost totally unable to socialize. In elementary school, I just assumed that everyone only had one friend. Out of nowhere, my mother brought me to an audition for Leader of the Pack, a tolerable 80s jukebox musical about doo-wop songs. The show made absolutely no sense to me, but it didn't matter. The rest of the cast were mostly other antisocial children of concerned parents, and we were overjoyed to find each other. I was amazed to discover that there were people in the world who might actually enjoy my company. Lance had a similar experience. Working a lightboard for Steel Magnolias, he met openly gay people for the first time at the age of 15. He first heard about Harvey Milk when a director of a show played him a recording of Harvey's speech about the importance of electing openly gay officials. 
We will not win our rights by staying quietly in our closets, Harvey thundered on the tape. We are coming out to fight the lies, the myths, the distortions. We are coming out to tell the truth about gays, for I am tired of the conspiracy of silence, so I'm going to talk about it, and I want you to talk about it. You must come out. Hearing a story about an openly gay guy was a revelation to a kid who's grown up in Texas and Mormon in the military, said Lance. His whole message was giving hope to the hopeless, and I'd been that hopeless kid. Here's the first time I'm hearing a man who's openly gay, and he's leading with this hope message, and his brand of hope actually includes me. It's life-saving. He added, It was really right then, in those first months of being in those theater workshops, that I started to dream. Three years later, he was off to UCLA's film, television, and theater program, where a gay roommate prompted him to come out. Lance was fascinated by the roommate's life. People wanted to hang out with him. He was a hit. I'd never experienced that, Lance said. I never had many friends. He was enjoying his life. He wasn't all the things I'd heard about being gay. He wasn't miserable. Cautiously, Lance started telling a few close friends that he might be gay. Within a month, he was shyly poking his face into West Hollywood bars. And a month after that, he had his first kiss. It happened after going to see Muriel's wedding with the boy he'd met a few days earlier. Lance was wearing a cute little outfit and shook with nerves. I had such a lovely time, Lance quavered after the movie. Aren't you going to give me a kiss? asked his date. It was a simple, chaste, barely touching kiss. But as he drove home, Lance couldn't stop trembling and smiling from ear to ear. It was confirmation, Lance said. It was like, that was right. That was everything I'd ever hoped my first kiss would be. Something I'd hoped for forever was to fall in love, and there it was. That's when Harvey Milk intersected with his life for a second time. Lance learned that there was a copy of The Times of Harvey Milk in UCLA's film archive. He tracked it down, booked a screening room, and sat there in the dark, soaking it in. While the screen flashed images of the 1978 Gay Freedom Day parade with thousands of queers proudly marching down San Francisco's Market Street, Harvey's voice washed over Lance. People from all over the country will go back and say, My God, 300,000 gay people and their friends marched, and you know, I almost think I saw my son there, Harvey said. Lance was that son. He saw himself there. These, he realized, were his people, and always had been. They were just waiting for him to find them. After graduating, he stuck around L.A., writing for the show Big Love and a TV movie about gay real-world star Pedro Zamora. But he was obsessed with the idea of dramatizing the life of Harvey Milk. He knew that an adaptation of Harvey's story had been languishing at Warner Brothers since 1992, and he relentlessly pursued the project. Executives weren't interested. I tried to get the job writing their version, Lance said. They didn't want me, so I went and did my own. His screenplay for Milk earned him the Academy Award just a few months after the 2008 election, and Lance seized the opportunity to channel Harvey's spirit at the Oscars. When I was 13 years old, my beautiful mother and my father moved me from a conservative Mormon home in San Antonio, Texas, to California, and I heard the story of Harvey Milk, and it gave me hope, he said in his acceptance speech, watched by millions. If Harvey had not been taken from us 30 years ago, I think he'd want me to say to all the gay and lesbian kids out there tonight who've been told that they are less than by their churches or by the government or by their families, that you are beautiful, wonderful creatures of value, and that no matter what everyone tells you, God does love you, and that very soon, I promise you, you will have equal rights federally across this great nation of ours. Like Chad, and like the Reiners, and like Ted Olson, and like Ken Melman, Lance had caught the equality bug. He was obsessed. A mutual acquaintance arranged a meeting between Lance and Chad, and soon Lance had joined their effort. The group was becoming an increasingly unlikely amalgamation of ideologies. A quiet political strategist, an activist Hollywood couple, a conservative attorney, a Republican mastermind, and now an inflammatory screenwriter. Overturning Prop 8 was pretty much the only thing they could see eye to eye on. 
How on earth was this mismatched congregation going to accomplish anything? While Chad plotted in secret, lawyers for established LGBT organizations were already hard at work addressing the challenge of Prop 8. Various couples, nonprofits, and cities announced their plans to sue in state court, along with celebrity lawyer Gloria Allred. Rather than scramble after multiple different cases, the California Supreme Court consolidated the best ones, forcing the gaggle of attorneys to work together like a boat with a dozen captains. Among those steering the ship was Enrique Managas, representing pro-equality California legislators. Their strategy, the attorneys decided, would be to argue that Prop 8 was passed improperly and should have been labeled a revision instead of an amendment, which would invalidate the result. Their best hope was that Prop 8 could be overturned on a technicality. This was a long shot, but there was no question in anyone's mind. As remote as their chances were, at least the case wasn't going to the Supreme Court of the United States. For years, LGBT community leaders had studiously avoided any federal challenge to marriage bans, and challenging Prop 8 at a federal level was simply unthinkable. A Supreme Court ruling against gay marriage would set the cause back years, even decades. We felt like this was not a Supreme Court that was ready to hear an affirmative marriage challenge," said Kate Kendall, recalling the resolve to avoid the federal lawsuit that Chad and friends were, unbeknownst to anyone else, now plotting. I think the sense was that the timing was wrong. The court was not ready. So instead, the long-established LGBT groups pursued a state challenge. Jenny Pizer, a director at Lambda Legal, knew that they'd need to find the most compelling and reliable couples possible for the lawsuit, and thought immediately of her friends Karen Strauss and Ruth Bornstein. They'd planned to marry during the 2008 window when it was legal in California, but Karen's mother Muriel was too sick to fly across the country, so they put it off until it was too late. Jenny approached them cautiously. I said we were talking to people about potentially being plaintiffs. She recalled, and that if they thought they might be interested in participating, I would give them some information about what we were doing and invite them to think about it. I remember reinforcing multiple times that this was not an expectation I was putting on them. Jenny was all too aware of the dangers of signing on for a lawsuit. So many high-profile marriage plaintiffs had been unable to weather the onslaught of scrutiny and the pressure to be perfect. Lancy Wu and Christy Chung, the plaintiffs in the litigation that followed the 2004 San Francisco weddings, saw their 18-year relationship crumble under the stress of the experience, just as Nania and Janoris had in Hawaii. There was huge pressure to stay together because it felt like we were failing the whole LGBT community. Christy Chung told journalist Roman Jimenez after the couple separated, "We were afraid we would hurt the cause. That part was really hard. We felt people were angry at us for splitting up." But Ruth and Karen, who had been together the same amount of time as Lancy and Christy, were confident that they could withstand the pressure cooker of a lawsuit. Ruth was a seasoned attorney, having recently won a case at the U.S. Supreme Court, and Karen was deputy director to Roberta Actenberg, founding executive director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights. They'd taken a gamble that Prop 8 would lose, and they'd be able to marry after the election, in part because Karen's mother had recently learned that her cancer had returned. Her chemotherapy prevented her from traveling across the country to a wedding, and the family resolved to wait until she was better. I visited Jenny Pizer in her office at Lambda Legal to talk about the case, and she handed me a stack of documents submitted by the Strauss family. It is impossible for me to express how much I love my daughter Karen. Muriel had written, "Our family is spread across the country. All too often, we gather only for milestone moments, ones happy and sad. Before it's too late." I would like our family to gather for one of the happiest imaginable of such moments, and one that I've longed to see—the marriage of my precious Karen to her beloved Ruth. Jenny closed her eyes at the memory of the words. Karen's mother said essentially, "Whatever you want, dear. If you girls want us to do this, of course we will. I mean, this is a woman who's dying of cancer." She had to pause, blinking back tears.
She took a deep breath and stared intently at a collage hanging on her office wall made of news clippings and photos of the people she'd worked with over the years. So many of them had endured painful breakups, or death, or losing a job, or a home, or a spouse to deportation. Others hadn't lived to see the work continue. Such an extraordinary gift to their kids, she whispered. Oral argument in the state lawsuit was scheduled for early March, with a ruling expected not long after. That gave Chad's group only a few months to plan their federal lawsuit. Ted Olson put in a call to Ted Boutros, a fellow partner at his law firm, asking for help coordinating attorneys for the case. Boutros, in turn, checked in with Ethan Detmer, looking for a good associate, and Ethan thought immediately of Enrique, who'd been working on a state lawsuit for months. That's how Enrique got the call, late in March of 2009. Ethan described the secretly percolating federal challenge to Prop 8. Do you want to be part of this case? he asked. Yes, Enrique answered. But here's the kicker, said Ethan. Ted Olson is going to be arguing it. Enrique was stunned for a moment. Are we really doing this? he wondered. He wasn't the only one. Chad had begun reaching out to a few of his colleagues from the Prop 8 campaign to let them know what he was up to, and they weren't pleased. There was a tremendous amount of resistance from Lambda Legal and ACLU, said Rob Reiner. They were frightened that if we lost, somehow... They wanted to go state by state, Michelle interrupted, eyeing him from a nearby easy chair. Yes, certainly you could go that way. It would take forever. Rob waved his hands, dismissing the incremental approach. Filing the first federal lawsuit, we could see the end game, which is getting to the U.S. Supreme Court. He sat back. If you can see a path, you do it. Privately, leaders in the movement begged Chad not to file the case when they found out about it. What if he lost? There was too much at stake. Losing at the ballot in California was bad enough, but losing at the Supreme Court would affect every state. It would be 50 times worse than Prop 8. Chad did his best to win them over. He invited some folks from the ACLU and Lambda to join him at the Reiner's house for lunch one afternoon and explain his plan one more time. But the reception was frosty, and the soup traumatic. It was really tense, said Rob. We sat in our dining room, and we had this soup, gazpacho soup, and it had these croutons in it. And we talked, heard what they had to say, and it was deathly silent. It was clearly not going to be a meeting of the minds. And you could hear the sound of those croutons crunching. It was so loud. I'll never forget it. They wanted to do a 10-year plan, Michelle said. And Chad's feeling was there are millions of young people who are committing suicide and feeling lost, Rob said. And we can't wait 10 more years for those kids to feel good about themselves, to feel validated. All the experts in the movement were telling him to stop, but Chad wouldn't hear it. He was going ahead anyway. They named their organization the American Foundation for Equal Rights, AFER, and found their plaintiffs. The first couple was a theater manager and fitness instructor named Paul and Jeff, who'd made a YouTube video about equality shortly after the passage of Prop 8. The second couple was Chris and Sandy, two women known to the Reiners through their connections to early childhood programs. The plaintiff couples were all just the nicest folks, sweet and funny, with loving families and cute dogs. Now all they needed was to get hurt. That's part of the lawsuit process, after all. You can't sue until you have an injury. With the paperwork for the suit nearly ready to file, Enrique went with Sandy and Chris to the Alameda County Clerk Recorder's office on May 21st. You're basically going to get gut-punched, he told them. You're going to get embarrassed. It's not going to feel good. But we've got to do this in order to move forward. To their dismay, at first, the process moved along quite smoothly. They were two women plus Enrique, and everyone who looked over their paperwork assumed that Enrique was Chris, a groom with a gender-neutral name. This was unexpected. Were they going to wind up with a license after all? In most clerk's offices, you stand at a window or a counter, but in Oakland, once your forms are filled out, you sit down at a desk like you're opening a checking account at a bank. Finally, the woman taking their forms understood what was going on. Well, she struggled, clearly unhappy. Do you know Proposition 8 passed? Yes, said Chris. 
Under California law, I can't give you a marriage license," said the woman. "I want to give you a marriage license, but I can't." Chris and Sandy looked uncomfortable. Enrique looked uncomfortable. The woman working at the desk looked uncomfortable. Finally, she said, "You know what? I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to have my boss tell you now." She made a call, and a few minutes later, a supervisor came down to read from a script. "I'm very sad to tell you, but he began." As he spoke, Enrique noticed that the man's hands were shaking. He read a quick statement about Prop 8 and concluded, "When the law changes, please come back here, and we'll give you a marriage license." None of this was a surprise. Gays and lesbians faced discrimination all the time, and yet there was still something novel about the experience. They deliberately sought out the discrimination, like hitting your thumb with a hammer. The anticipation of a purposely self-inflicted wound seemed to make it hurt even more than an accidental one. Sandy, Chris, and Enrique stepped out of City Hall and stood there for a moment, looking at each other as they waited for the adrenaline to wear off. This is the beginning of the case, Enrique said. We just started, and now we're on the road to the Supreme Court. And as he said the words, he thought, "Really? Is this really happening?" The California Supreme Court announced the very next day that they'd release their decision on Prop 8 after the weekend. It was perfect timing. If the state court upheld Prop 8 as everyone expected them to do, Chad and his team would be ready to announce their case the day after the ruling, leaving no time for anyone else to beat them to the punch with a federal lawsuit of their own. Enrique scampered down to the courthouse at 3 p.m. on Friday with the goal of submitting the paperwork for the case at the last possible minute before the weekend. He swung open the doors of the filing room at the district courthouse, expecting to see a long line and bustling activity, enough to keep him waiting until just before the 4 p.m. filing deadline. Instead, the room was empty except for four clerks behind a counter, all of whom looked up at him expectantly. "Oh," he said awkwardly, stalling for time. "I have an edit to my brief. I'm just going to sit here." He sidled over to a chair. "I have to make an edit," he said again. Hunched over his phone at one side of the room, he frantically emailed the team. I'm here early. There's nobody here," he wrote. What followed were the most grueling 45 minutes of his life, during which he pretended to continuously edit the filing. Every couple of minutes, a clerk would glance over. "Oh, have you been helped?" And he'd nervously laugh. "No, no, I'm just making my edits." Finally, at 3:45 p.m., he stood up to get in line, or more accurately, got up to form a line because there was no one else there. He handed the papers over to the clerk. "That must be a very important brief," she said. I don't know," Enrique replied, having just spent the better part of an hour pretending to meticulously correct the document. "I haven't read it." She looked back at him for a moment, then said, "Okay." The next Monday was Memorial Day, so it wasn't until Tuesday that thousands of people crowded into the street outside the California Supreme Court to await a decision. It was almost exactly a year since the 2008 ruling that legalized marriage, and the setting was the same courthouse steps. But there was a difference. This time, the crowd was orders of magnitude larger. As usual in San Francisco, the pro-equality side outnumbered the anti-gay sign holders, who waved slogans like "Gay Pervert" and "One Man Plus One Woman." They jostled uneasily next to each other in the street, standing shoulder to shoulder and staring up the steps into the courthouse like they had one year ago for the decision that legalized marriage. This time, when attorneys emerged at 9 a.m., it was with grim expressions. Reporters sprinted for them as copies of a press release began to circulate in the crowd. Supreme Court rejects challenges to Prop 8. It said, "The crowd began to howl in anger, and for a moment, it looked like things might get ugly." Community organizers had planned for this. In the event of a loss, key figures in the crowd were assigned to lead a march to the intersection of Grove and Van Ness, where they formed an enormous linked arm ring and blocked traffic. A procession of drag queens dressed as nuns, known as the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, mixed with more traditional clergy, holding bullhorns and leading several hundred protesters past City Hall, down the street, and into the intersection. 
Some carried roses, while others bore slogans on their shirts. The people united will never be defeated. Two boys named Frank and Joseph sat on the ground, holding a giant blown-up copy of their marriage certificate between them. A group of clergy occupied the pavement, while another group walked around the ring of protesters, blessing them one at a time. Molly McKay was there, of course, leafing frantically through the court's decision. It wasn't good. The justices had pointed out that although California protects certain freedoms as inalienable, one of the inalienable freedoms was the right to restrict other freedoms. In other words, there was an inalienable right to alienate rights. Hey, nobody ever said California had to make sense. Eventually, police began gently arresting protesters so that traffic could flow again. One by one, they led away over a hundred people. Left for last were Robert Frank and Sean Higgins, a couple who stood in the middle of the intersection holding a single rose until they too were gently separated by sympathetic SFPD officers and placed in zip-tie handcuffs. Following this, it seemed obvious to everyone what was required, overturning Prop 8 at the ballot box. The final decisive round will not be won in the legal arena. It will be won in the electoral arena, city attorney Dennis Herrera told reporters. San Francisco Supervisor Bevan Dufty agreed, citing momentum behind a 2010 ballot measure. Equality California's Jeff Kors was even more optimistic. The courts ruled, they said, it's up to the voters, he said. So we'll take this back to the voters. Equality California wants to go back to the voters in November 2010 if there's a clear path to victory, and we know we'll have the resources, both people power and money, to win. The day after the ruling, NCLR, the ACLU, Lambda Legal, and several other organizations put out a document entitled Make Change, Not Lawsuits. Now that the Supreme Court has refused to strike down Proposition 8, we need to go back to the voters, it said. It is tempting to at least try a federal lawsuit first, but it is a temptation we should resist. They pointed to the Bowers decision, the case in the 1980s that upheld anti-sodomy laws. That ruling allowed police departments to arrest gay people simply for being intimate with each other in their own homes, until it was overturned by Lawrence 20 years later. Conventional wisdom held that the Bowers case was brought too soon, before there was a climate of acceptance for LGBTs. In 1986, Evan Wolfson had written Lambda Legal's amicus briefs in the Bowers case. Jenny Pizer had checked the citations. They had seen the consequences of hasty litigation. They couldn't bear to risk it again, not when they now had a cautiously crafted, long-term, multi-state plan to avoid it. While the protesters were led away, Chad and his team prepared to make their big announcement the following day. They had absolutely no doubt that they were doing the right thing by filing a federal lawsuit. I never had reservations, said Enrique. What this case taught me was it's not enough to be a smarter attorney. It's not enough to work really hard. You also have to have courage. We talked again pretty vigorously about, okay, what if we lose? What about a federal challenge, said NCLR's Kate Kendall. We also felt like, look, if we don't challenge Prop 8 in federal court, somebody's going to. She laughed, and it was a knowing, pained laugh as she thought back to the day of decision. If only they'd known then what they'd know 24 hours later. The morning after the ruling, Kate turned on a TV to watch Chad announce at a live press conference that some of the most powerful attorneys in the country had decided to launch their own Supreme Court attack on Prop 8. Well, Kate thought, that is fucking bold. This week you did something effing bold yourself. I did. I did. I toasted my first English muffin. You ordered a toaster oven and it has changed our lives. (laughs) More so than marriage ever could have. Toast has changed our lives. Somehow we have gone 15 years without having a toaster oven. Or any means of toasting. I mean, we've mooched. We haven't had a microwave. We haven't, yeah. Um, We mooched toast from roommates in the past. mm, mm. 
But now, yeah, instead of having to heat up an entire oven to 400 degrees to make a piece of toast, now we can we can toast with aplomb. We've entered the 19th century. You know, maybe if we'd gotten married years ago, we'd have gotten a toaster oven out of it. Oh, that's what marriage is all about. Small that's appliances. It. That's it. Small appliances and English muffins, for heaven's sake. All those nooks and grannies. Was, yes, yes. Dripping. I, I think you're writing our wedding vows right now. <laughs> so, you may now butter the cranny. <laughs> Get up here, cranny. Anyway, this chapter we got into uh, the post-prop eight days. We've had our suffering, we've had our protests. Now what? I wanted to fight against it the minute it passed. Who is that? That's Enrique Minagas. He's one of the attorneys who worked on the Prop 8 case. I thought, you know, if we don't win this, that my marriage will never be full, right? It will always have an asterisk. When I heard about this case, I thought, this is great. We're, I'm going to fight for my friends and people I don't even know who want to get married. But shortly thereafter, I, I realized, wow, this is a really, this is a fight for my family. This is a fight for my daughter. Um, and that she can say that her family, her two dads, their marriage is just as good as anybody else's marriage. It was a very personal fight. Enrique wasn't sure what his involvement was going to be, and then one day he got a call from a partner in his firm telling him they were going to file a case. And then he said, by the way, Ted Olson is going to be the one leading the charge, and I was incredulous. I couldn't believe it. Um, and then lastly, and we want you to be part of it, and I thought, wow, how is this happening? It's just one of those amazing, once-in-a-lifetime opportunities, and I was so grateful. Neither Sandy or I have ever been comfortable making it someone else's problem. That's Chris Perry. She's one of the plaintiffs in the Prop 8 case. Enrique and Chris and Chris's partner, Sandy, they all went down to the Alameda courthouse together one afternoon so they could be turned down for a marriage license. And that wasn't easy for them. Here's Sandy remembering that day. And there was this really wonderful woman working there. She was, you know, probably a 50-year-old African-American woman. And when we went to ask her for our license, she said, I'm sorry that I can't do that for you. Um, and I would like my supervisor come, to come and tell you why, because I'm not comfortable with it, and I, I wish I could. And then she went and got her supervisor, and this man came down. He looked somewhat stricken, and he said, I'm very, very sorry to tell you that we're unable to do that. And we very much hope that if that changes, you will come back. And so they, we felt like... They They both really were quite pained in having to respond to us negatively. But that pain had to happen in order to make way for the lawsuit that Chad Griffin and Afer had cooked up. I give tremendous props and kudos to Afer and Chad uh, for what they did. And that's Kate Kendall from the National Center for Lesbian Rights. As we heard in this chapter, a lot of the established LGBT groups really did not want this lawsuit to go ahead. But it doesn't mean that the LGBT organizations who were more reluctant to challenge Prop 8 federally, that we were weak or lacked courage or were sitting on our hands. The pain of that clerk having to turn away Sandy and Chris, that's nothing compared to the pain that the whole country would feel if this lawsuit went the wrong way. We actually had experience with losing. When you lose at the Supreme Court, you lose for your entire community. That sobers you. You, you recognize we have a responsibility not just to litigate pell-mell and into the hail of bullets. We have to understand that it's not just a loss for us as attorneys. The impact will reverberate through our entire community, perhaps through generations. And Bowers versus Hardwick happened it, while I was in law school, it happened while many people were employed at the very organizations being asked to challenge Prop 8 federally. So, you know, everybody plays their important role at the time they should. You know, this was a fight that we had to fight. That's Enrique Monagas again. Um, and we couldn't just wait around and hope that, like, someday in the future, these laws would change and things would just get better somehow magically. You know, um, you know battles are won because they're fought. 
But let me ask you this. Did they even try the magic option? <laughs> you mean wave a magic wand? Well, I mean, did they find any necromancers or sorcerers of any sort who could have tried to make gay marriage happen to everyone? Surely, if, if Gandalf has taught us anything, it's that wizards are gay. And he could have just waved his wand at Prop 8 and said, you shall not pass. <laughs> so it is question time. Good. I hope you are ready. Yep. Brace yourself. Last week, a commenter chastised you for not bringing up Lawrence v. Texas. Yes. But in this chapter, you did. I did. You anticipated his criticism. <laughs> yes. And responded to it months and months ago. Uh, yep. Uh, what was Lawrence v. Texas, and why was it such a big deal? Ah, Lawrence v. Texas. Well, that was the case that uh, overturned the sodomy bans nationwide. Uh, there, for a long, long time, uh, you could be sent to jail if you were caught having sex with your partner. That was upheld by the Supreme Court back in the 80s with <clears throat> Bowers v. Hardwick, where the Supreme Court ruled that, uh, yeah, of course states should be able to arrest people for having gay sex. Uh, in fact, a lot of the people who worked on um, marriage cases going forward, for example, Jenny Pizer and Evan Wilson, uh, they worked on Bowers v. Hardwick. That was one of the early, early, early in their careers. Uh, so when people talk about being gun-shy, about filing uh, lawsuits, and like, if we lose this, it could be a big deal— that's what they're talking about. That was probably one of our biggest... I'd say that is the single biggest litigatory loss. Litigatory? Just totally made that up. Very good. I bought it. No, you didn't. You challenged me. <laughs> <laughs> what changed between Bowers and Lawrence? Times. Times just changed. Uh, different court. Uh, you know, I'm not quite so familiar with those cases, but, uh, you know, both cases made a, a personal liberty argument. In the 80s, when... Uh, there was very little understanding of what gays were, and you know, it was sort of a, a stereotype of, oh, well, they just are weird people who have made a decision to have pervert sex. Times had, had changed significantly by 2002. Or no, t- sorry, 2004. In this chapter, you talk about your meetings with Rob and Michelle Reiner. Yes, they're great fun. Uh, Rob, of course, uh, starred on All in the Family, a show created by Norman Lear, mm-hmm. which you recently did a video about. Uh, there was an episode in the 70s, I think, yeah. uh, that essentially addressed gay marriage. Yeah, there's an episode of All in the Family, uh, Cousin Liz. I have a video up about it. You can find it at youtube.com slash mattbaum, uh, where we talk about this really groundbreaking episode of All in the Family, where uh, the bunkers meet a uh, the partner of a deceased family member. It turns out that after this woman died, the, they find out that she had been living for years with, with a woman. Um, and uh, so Norman Lear was heavily involved in the creation of that episode. You know, also the creation of, of People for the American Way. Like, uh, you know, he wasn't just a TV guy. Uh, he was really deeply invested in how can we make the world a better place. That's something that Rob picked up from, that you can use your prominence to change people's lives for the better what was people for the american way people for the american way was it was found in the early 80s as basically a way to fight back against what then was being called the moral majority so they basically keep an eye on what was happening in right-wing circles and uh, direct money from high-profile donors uh to uh progressive causes uh whether you know personal liberty stuff or um you know civil rights for for uh disenfranchised minorities uh, they're still active, still doing really great work. Lovely. It's a name I've heard in the past, but I've never actually been aware of what they did. Yeah, and it, Norman uh, and a lot of the people who worked at People for the American Way are also deeply involved in uh, Sandy Hook Promise, which is uh, one of the organizations working on gun control now. Well, in your meeting with Rob, uh, he was talking about Chad Griffin. Mm-hmm. And Rob Reiner said, when marriage equality became something that was passionate to Chad, then it became something that was important to Rob and Michelle. Yes. And I was wondering, to what extent do you think 
that was a common experience for straight allies, that marriage equality wasn't necessarily something they were super interested in until it directly impacted someone they knew and cared about. That is super common. I mean, that's how it happens. There's a direct correlation between knowing gay people and caring about gay issues. After Prop 8 passed, that was one of the big pushes uh, from a lot of the organizations was, uh, it was this Tell Three was the name of the campaign, where uh, you were encouraged to tell three people uh, that you are gay and that uh, marriage equality is important to you. Um, Because that is a thing that moves people. Sure. And in the case of Rob and Michelle, I mean, they had been strong allies Mm -hmm. prior to the fight for marriage equality, but it seems like it took marriage inequality directly affecting one of their friends to really move them. Yeah, you know, one thing they talked about in our conversation, um, and I don't think this is in the book, is that they're very selective about the causes that they really dedicate themselves to. And so Rob was saying that he supports things that are going to win and that there's a clear path to victory. So there are a lot of things, you know, for example, climate change. He said he's not getting involved in climate change because he doesn't see a clear path to victory there. And so he's, you know, he can throw money at it, but nothing's going to happen. But when, um, I mean, I think two important things happen. One is that he's like, oh, wow, this kid that is super important to me, this is super important to him. Uh, And also, I can see how we can win this. Rob also mentioned uh, that we can't wait 10 more years for those kids to feel good about themselves, to feel validated. Um, You know, referring to teens that were feeling lost or maybe even contemplating suicide or some other form of self-harm. To what extent do you think the fight for marriage equality is not necessarily about the institution of marriage, but more about equality for same-sex relationships and therefore same-sex identity in general. That idea is why Evan Wolfson started fighting for marriage equality in the 1980s. You know, he had that same-sex marriage thesis that he wrote when he was at Harvard in like 82, I think, or maybe 84. And the reason for it was that exactly what you say. We can achieve equality for people in same-sex relationships by legalizing by, by through legal recognition of those relationships through the the legal equality for those relationships you know it wasn't just about like oh it's really important that we get married uh it's not just that it's really important that we are not stigmatized and that discrimination against us uh is no longer a part of the legal code sure and as Long-time listeners to the podcast will know, I am no fan of marriage, but I think it communicates a message, not just to young people, but to the culture at large, that being attracted to someone of the same sex and being in a relationship with someone of the same sex is as legitimate as being in a relationship with someone of the opposite sex. Yeah, the license is nice, but the meaning of the license is, is much more important. We mentioned Evan Wolfson's thesis that he wrote in the 80s. Uh, Andrew Sullivan also was writing about marriage equality in the 80s. And it sounds like Ted Olson picked that up and ran with it in the 2000s, saying that marriage equality was a conservative position. Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, that's, I think that's an easy case to make, uh, that stability and uh, promise to the person you care about and family, family, family. Uh, those, are, those are family values. I mean, I think this drive, this LGBT drive to be a part of the institution of marriage is itself fairly conservative. We want into this tradition. I mean, what could be more tr- conservative than that? Indeed. And on the subject of conservatives, uh, Ken Melman got involved in the Prop 8 case. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, you say he waited 43 years to come out. Why is that? And what finally got him to come out? Ken has been very tight-lipped on that subject. It is an ongoing mystery, one which I look forward to no longer having to speculate about. (laughs) Oh, that sounds loaded. Ken is a Republican who has built his political career. I mean, he's not exclusively a a political operative, but um, he's built his political identity on working with people uh, with whom 
homosexuality, his homosexuality would be incompatible with the work that he was doing for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so something prompted him to make a decision that that had changed. Uh, he has never said what that is. Okay. So like other conservative politicians who came out when it was safe to do so and now want to be heroes of the movement, uh, he's enjoying the fruits of everyone else's labor. Precisely. He was closeted for a long time, benefited from the presumption of heterosexuality, and now he does not have to worry about the stigma that he would have if he had come out, say, when Barney Frank came out or when... Um, David Mixner came out. Uh, he he bided his time, and and now uh, and it worked out for him very well because uh, you know the company that he kept. The, these are people that uh, would have uh, he would have disadvantaged himself in their company if he had come out sooner. Uh, and so he made a decision that their company was more important uh, than uh, being openly gay. A profile in courage, indeed. Speaking of profiles in courage, you mentioned Harvey Milk a bit in this chapter, and in that context, you mentioned 1978's Gay Freedom Day. Yes. I've never heard of that. What was that? Uh, before we figured out the word pride, essentially we went through a little branding exercise in the late 70s. Uh, I, I believe it was called Christopher Street West for a long time when it, it was in Los Angeles uh, or maybe in San Francisco. But uh, it, it, there were a few years before we settled on, oh, yeah, pride sums it up. That's that's a little bit easier. Consolidate everything under the rainbows. No more of these lambda sing- symbols and uh, weird interlocking gender icons. Uh, we're just going to call it pride. We're going to have a rainbow and that's going to be nice and simple. What's the history of the lambda icon? So lambda is not a great symbol. That was adopted in 1970, and uh, it has sort of a convoluted history. Uh, it was the first letter of the Greek term for the Spartans. And so uh, I suppose it was chosen because of the uh, homosexual associations with the Spartans. I mean, it is not a great connection. I don't know. That sounds kind of hot. I've actually thought uh, it would be great to get a Destiny clan together that lived like the Spartans. Where they had to steal all their food and have sex with each other and then go fight Martians. That sounds amazing. Whether whether that's in Destiny or just like a, an adaptation of a Heinlein novel, I don't care. I just I want to see that. <laughs> well, on the subject of things that gays organize around, in your interview with Dustin Lance Black, you talked about uh, how he sort of found himself and his gay identity in the theater in high school, and you were reflecting on your own experience with that. Now, this is an anecdote that on your show, Sewers of Paris, seems to come up again and again, and also comes up again and again just with gays in conversation, that they found a sanctuary in theater when they were young. And you yourself have occasionally referred to high school theater as the unofficial GSA. Yeah. What is it that you think draws young queers to theater? I wish there was some actual psychological research into this. Uh, I would have to guess that there's two things going on there. One is, uh, this ties into a conversation I was having this week about camp, why gays love camp. And one is the tension between, one theory is that there's this tension between the public persona that we've had to adopt for so many uh, decades, you know, we're very buttoned down and straight-laced and masculine in public. And then in private, we're, you know, can finally release and cut loose and embrace that like more emotional demonstrative side. And that's why camp is sort of an explosion of emotion and why the, it appeals to us to have something so over the top. And so I think that's why theater works for gays, uh, is it's a place where you can uh, be really flamboyant and and adopt a persona in a way that is different from the persona that you have to adopt because of all the social pressure about how men are supposed to behave. I think another thing that's going on there is that uh, theater is a place where you can put on a mask and uh, either try being someone else or 
uh, avoid being the person that you feel pressure to be. So uh, I, I think that's something else that speaks to gays. Uh, in the arts in general. I mean, you always see gays in the arts. And I really, I don't know what the actual reason for that is. But uh, I think it's not so much why are gays attracted to the arts. It's why are straight people, straight men scared away from them. That is a fascinating question. And to the slash gay bros out there who are like, I never identified with theater. I identified with sports balls and baby back ribs and fixing my car. Your experience is valid, too. Sure, sure. It's incorrect, but valid. (laughs) No, it's not incorrect. Of course, of course. Go play your sports balls. But off the balls and into the streets. (laughs) I'm sorry. Good one. No, there was no segue here. So I was going to go back to Prop 8. Um, You said that the first challenge to Prop 8 was based on whether or not it should have been a revision rather than an amendment? Oh, yeah. So what, is, mm, what is that? I don't even worry your pretty little head about it. Uh, it's uh, this very arcane um, quibbling over terminology. It sounds like something out of Brazil. The where movie? like Yes, yes, not the, not the nation, the movie, um, where a document had like the wrong stamp on it and therefore... Creates this cascade of, of misunderstandings? Yeah. Sort of. I mean, it was a novel argument that really did not have a chance. That, um, you know, the rules are slightly... It, it basically, it's a subjective thing of, like, how much are we changing the Constitution? If we're changing it this much, it's a revision. If we're changing it this much, it's an amendment. And uh, our side was arguing, oh, well, it should never have been on the ballot anyway because it's, a, it's a revision, not an amendment. And uh, that was not a really a winning argument. A good try. Good try. But... So it was a Hail Mary, so to speak? Like, there wasn't much confidence in it actually succeeding? Absolutely. I mean, there was confidence. It was not a Hail Mary in like, oh boy, let's let's see if we can pull this out of our ass. The people who were arguing it really did legitimately believe that they had a shot with this argument. But it was a long shot, and they knew it. So to kick off Afer's case, the plaintiffs had to go get denied a marriage license in order to have an injury. That's correct. So in political lawsuits, how common is this, going out and deliberately seeking an injury so you have a reason to sue? Completely. I, I Probably almost 100% of the time that's the way it happens. I mean, you, when it's a big, high-profile case, like pretty much any case that lands at the Supreme Court, I mean, these are deliberate lawsuits. It's not just something that you stumbled into. 100% is a little high. It's probably not 100%. But, you know, these are organized things. It costs millions of dollars to bring a case to the Supreme Court. So if it happens, I mean, it's as big a production as, as a Hollywood blockbuster. So there's, you know, a, a fair amount of stagecraft going on here where, you know, the narrative has to be crafted in a way that's appealing both to the public and to uh, judges and justices. So, you know, it's not like some accidental thing of like, whoops, uh, it's something that's plotted meticulously uh, on both sides uh, to do everything they can to, to make their case as strong as possible. And is this why so often with civil disobedience, we see people seeking arrest or fines so that they have an injury to then sue over? No, I don't think so. Uh, I think it depends on the case. But a cornerstone of civil disobedience is has to be a willingness to suffer consequences for your disobedience. I mean, it, it doesn't really count if you block traffic and then everybody goes home and, and has a nice day. Uh, you have to go to jail to make a stand and be punished and say, look, I'm suffering for this cause. I'm willing to sacrifice something here. So I, I think that's why more grassrootsy uh, you know, I'm, I'm deliberately getting arrested. Why I think that happens? I, I think it's a little different from I'm doing this so that I can make a legal claim. So I'm loath to bring this up, but in the case of a certain county clerk who's unwilling to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples, do you think that that is an act of civil disobedience, or do you think that that is trying to create an injury to set up the conditions for a case that could potentially go up to the Supreme Court? 
Well, I don't want to ascribe motives to anyone, but I think it could be a little of both. I, I think there uh, is a possibility that uh, people who are involved in refusing licenses to gay couples really do think that they're engaging in civil disobedience. Um, you know, there's good civil disobedience and bad civil disobedience. Uh, just you know, the act of breaking a law that you feel is unjust isn't necessarily a noble act. It could be a terrible thing to do. But uh, yeah, I think I think there's probably a little of each going on there. However, in that case, I don't think there is much of any chance of it progressing beyond where it has gone so far. Uh, there's a little civil disobedience, and then people are going to forget about it. There's a little bit of a lawsuit, and judges are going to laugh it out of court, and then we can all go back to what we were doing. And now back to Prop 8. You mentioned that after the challenge failed, NCLR, the ACLU, Lambda Legal, and the other organizations involved issued statements basically saying, okay, no more lawsuits, let's pursue the ballot. Yes, Prepare to Prevail was the was the name of that campaign. Good God. So at the time that those organizations were issuing those statements, were they aware of what AFER was planning? Yes. So was that sort of a coded knock-it-off to AFER and organizations like AFER that might have been thinking about federal lawsuits? Again, I don't want to ascribe motives to anyone, but I don't see how you could read it any other way. I mean, those organizations will say, the people in those organizations will say, truthfully, that they didn't know that AFER was filing the lawsuit on the day that they did. Uh, and they didn't realize that they put out that statement on the exact same day. Uh, but, of course, they knew what AFER was up to. Chad consulted with them before he filed the lawsuit. So, yeah, I mean, they knew, and they knew what was going on, and they thought that it was a terrible idea. But then it was filed, and so they had to take a position on it. And initially their position was, ooh, no, I don't think this is a good idea. And then when it was clear it was going ahead, uh, it, that kind of morphed into, well, um, if you're going to do this, uh, we should be a part of it. And to which Ava responded, no, thank you. And on the subject of it being a terrible idea, the reason people felt that way was because a loss at the Supreme Court could set the marriage equality movement back decades, right? Easily, yeah. And there was a suspicion that uh, Ted Olson maybe was not completely sincere in what he was doing. I mean, you really have to be a conspiracy theorist to believe that, but there were people who believed that Ted Olson was not going to litigate this uh, as strongly as he could, and he was you know, there's basically a, a, an attempt to sabotage the movement. Oh, that's fascinating. So they thought he was sandbagging it? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that. I, it, it's a ludicrous theory that uh, one of the top lawyers in the country would intentionally take on a case and fail uh, before the Supreme Court. Sure. Okay. Yeah, that's, that seems very likely. But I mean, it, it, you just have to remember how insane it seemed that this guy was on this case. Sure. So the stakes are high. The stakes are very high and delicious. And with the stakes as high as they could possibly be, end of questions. Oh, oh, quite a cliffhanger. Yes, we'll have to find out. Will the marriage equality movement be set back decades? Find out on the next exciting episodes of Defining Marriage. Yes, and it all depends on, on which parallel universe this podcast is taking place in. You didn't put the flux capacitor in the toaster oven, did you? <laughs> I thought that's where it's supposed to go. I thought that was the bulb. I put paper towels in it today, so we're you both... Did. We're both learning how to use a microwave oven. I mean, a toaster oven for the first time in our lives. It, it did not smell good. Oh, no, it, to it toasted the paper towel completely. To it was delicious. Yeah. <laughs> uh, public, public service announcement, listeners, do not put your uh, uh, paper towels in toaster ovens. It is not a microwave. What's a microwave? Yeah, it... <laughs> listeners, buy us a microwave. <laughs> or, if that's too much to ask, uh, leave a review on iTunes. That's just as good. Here's a review from MSDC1498. Wit, wisdom, and history. Love every minute. Thank you very much. I take full credit for all of the wit. It is all mine. 
And what's on the gay agenda for next week? Finally, some good news. We're going to jump across the country over to New York and uh, join our friends Rory and Gavin and Jenny uh, to find out uh, what's been cooking up in other states, because we spent an awful, uh, awful lot of time in, in California lately. Hopefully they haven't been cooking paper towels. Hopefully not. If people want to find out what bun they've got in the oven, they can read the book. They can buy it where? Another masterful segue. Uh, it's available on Amazon. Uh, and please do, if you like the book, leave a review on Amazon. <laughs> Here's some feedback from Matt Kahn, the founder of GamerX, the, or GX now, the convention for everyone. Yes, quite. Amazing book about the struggles to get where we are now with marriage open to all. Amazing author and amazing book. Thank you very much, Matt Kahn. Uh, and please do check out GX3. That's a lovely queer-focused game conference that's uh, coming up in December. We'll be presenting a panel at GX3, and uh, stay tuned for more details on that. And if people want details on the other things you create, where can they find those? You can find my other podcast, The Sewers of Paris, for revealing personal stories about the entertainment that changed the lives of gay men. That's at sewersofparis.com. It's available on iTunes and Stitcher and all those things. And you can also find my YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash mattbaum for all kinds of fun videos about issues and entertainment pertinent to LGBTs and their allies. And if people want to watch you play Lego Dimensions, they can add Secret Cow on the PlayStation Network, and you'll occasionally be doing that. I invite everyone to watch me hop around as the Wicked Witch of the West as a Lego. But that's not on PlayStation. That's just you that's around just the me. house. That's just my cosplay. And thanks very much to everyone who chatted with me for this week's episode. That's Enrique Minagas, Chris Perry, Sandy Steer, and Kate Kendall. Until next time, friends, by the power vested in me by the internet, I now pronounce this podcast over... I talk faster, but make more errors when I've had a lot of coffee.